We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look here at the text that Charles read to you in um, Mark in chapter, chapter 6. And to show you what it's about, I'll, let me get you a running start on it. If you look at Mark chapter 1, that you see in uh, Mark 1 verse verse um, 18. Let's see. I'm sorry. In Mark chapter 1, verse 28, it says that immediately the news about Jesus spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. He was sensational. And in chapter 1, in verse 45, the leper went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city Last line, they were coming to him from everywhere. So Mark lets you know he began his ministry as the most popular guy in town. The claims that he made, the miracles that he did. But if you look at chapter 2 and verse 7, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Enter the Pharisees that were going to work their way into heaven. Why is this man blaspheming? Do you look at verse 16? It says, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? You see again, opposition. They didn't like the idea that you could be forgiven as an event. You did not have to earn it, that he could confer upon you forgiveness, no matter how low you were. And if you'll look in verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Your disciples do not fast. Reason? Because he is taking a bride. He is conferring salvation at his, at his goodwill and at his pleasure. And if you'll look at chapter 3 and verse 2, they were watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Why can he heal on the Sabbath and work on the Sabbath? Answer, because he's the creator and he makes the rules. He forgives sins. He creates. If you'll look in verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians as to how they might destroy him. Uh, if you'll look at chapter 3 and verse 22, he is possessed. It says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. That this is the worst individual that has ever come into our nation. He is in league with the devil. And in verse, uh, oh, let's see, uh, that'll do. From chapter one, you see that he is sensational. Chapter 2 and 3, there is opposition because of the radical nature of the claims that he made that he is the very Son of God. And in chapter 4, you don't see anything about the Pharisees or in chapter 5 because upon his rejection, he is now moving away from the leadership of Israel. He is going to the lowly of Israel and then in chapter 4, he will go in the mystery of the church to you the Gentiles.
And so that is how John is picturing the ministry of Christ. O-R-P. The kingdom is offered. The kingdom is rejected. And the kingdom is postponed in the mystery of you to go to you. A great big room full of non-Jews worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish Bible with a Jewish Messiah. And here we are, Gentiles. Where did that come from? Mark lets you know. It was offered, it was rejected, and now it is postponed. Well, in chapter 6, this is a very key passage because it shows you very clearly why this man was the most loved and still is the most loved and the most hated man that has ever lived. He is the one man that we have great books of songs dedicated to the glory of his life and the ugliness of his death, tortured for six hours. We sing about it. We have millions upon millions of buildings all over this world that have been there for 20 centuries and the adoration of this man's memory. Why is it that when you name a kid, there's two names you don't give a kid, Judas and Jesus. Judas is too awful. Jesus is too grand and too great. How do we have a man that there are places in this world, not merely where he is sung about with tears, but places where if you mention his name, you go to prison. Are those places out there? You can go get in an airplane, fly east or west, 17 hours either way, and you can land in a place that will put you to death for mentioning his name. How can you be the most loved and the most hated man in all of history in one person? Well, we're going to see in chapter 6 why Jesus can have the nickname from Isaiah, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. How do you get it? Chapter 6 and verse 1, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. The progression chronologically, I'm sorry, the, the, the progression geographically of Jesus is this. He starts in Jerusalem, and then after a number of months, he goes to Nazareth, where he preaches in the synagogue, and they go to throw him off of a cliff. Because he said that if you come to me only for miracles, uh, and that is all, you're going to end up rejecting me at what I teach. And if you do, I'm going to the Gentiles. And they took him to throw him off a cliff. And then he went, he moved about 25 miles away to Capernaum. And now he is coming back to his hometown. And he went from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And he comes back to the synagogue in verse 2 where he is expected to teach. He's no longer just this sensational figure he is now the prophet Jesus. And so the Sabbath came and he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished. Everybody crammed in to hear this guy that has become so famous now. And they were astonished. Now the word astonished is a word that elsewhere it means the word marvel. And it's a word used for whenever you see a miracle by God and you shake your head and you can't figure it out. You are astonished. They heard words and they saw miracles. And the only answer is, this is God. And so in verse 2, 
They said, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? They marveled at his teaching. How can a human say these things? He taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. He, it's like he's been to heaven himself. Uh, the book of Hebrews. God who spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in, in many ways in this last day has spoken in his son. God spoke in his son. Wow. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten Son of God. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Gracious, what type of man is this? In Him was life, and His life was the light of men. In Him all things were created. And apart from him, nothing has been created that is created. He is the creator of all, and him is life. Good, gracious, who is this man? You remember in John chapter 7, they sent out the temple police to arrest Jesus. They came back empty-handed, and they said, what's the problem? They said, never a man spake as this man. I've never heard anything like this. And so they were astonished at the claims this man was making about God. And in verse 6, and the miracles performed by his hands. Miracles are always signs. They always are in the accompaniment of a preacher. And they signify the divinity of the man's message. You see miracles with Moses, with Elijah, and with Jesus and the twelve. He did miracles to confirm that this man is divine. Why were they astonished? It wasn't just because of what he said. It was who it was who said it. He was just so common. I remember speaking uh, last year. I went to my 50th year reunion and spoke. And I was real nervous because they knew me. They didn't know that before I became the electrifying holy man of God that I am that I was just, they knew who I was. And they could, uh, there was a guy there that I threw up in the back of his uh, Mustang. And it wasn't because I was sick. And he knew me, here I was. And so that's why they're amazed at who this man is. He's so lowly. He is, verse three, is not this the carpenter? T-E-K-T-O-N. Tecton, and it means somebody that works with his hands. If you wanted to call him not the carpenter, but the handyman, you could. Uh, he could make things in wood. He could be a stonemason to shape uh, bricks for houses. And so they said, is this not the carpenter? Meaning this is a blue collar man. This is a guy that's got big calluses and he's sunburned. Uh, he's not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. He's not a Herodian. He's not a scribe. He's not one of the Essenes, as in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. He's not one of them outside of Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And it says, 
He's the son of Mary. Joseph has died. This is Mary's kid. He's got brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. He grew up with us. I coached him in t-ball. I coached him in soccer. I used to see him playing with the kids, going down the street. I used to see him sitting on the edge of the cliff, looking out over the valley. He would sit in synagogue with his mama and his brothers, all, all seven of them sitting there. Here was the oldest. I remember him. Uh, he built my house. He built my barn. He built this table. All of us have things in our house that this guy built. I can look at him. I see his name on those things. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. And so that is their astonishment. It's how can the Christ of God be this guy, this common man? And because of that, in verse 3, what's it say? Astonishment moved into another realm, didn't it? And they took, what's your Bible have? Offense. I am offended. He said radical things about repentance, salvation by faith, judgment. I thank thee, O God, that I am not like other men. I do this, I do that, I do that. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Jesus said, this man went to his house unsaved. Says who? Says me. You know the mind of God? Yes, I do. And you're a carpenter. Yeah. You're preaching there in your overhauls. Yes, I am. Really? And the Pharisee or the tax collector would not lift his eyes to heaven and he beat his chest. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said that he went to his house saved. Says who? I do. Saved by what? Faith alone. How? Like Abraham. So you know your Old Testament. Yes, I do. Matter of fact, I wrote it. And you know how a man is saved. Yes, I'm the one that saves him. You, the tecton, Jesus the, the mason, Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the handyman. You're Bob Vila. You're Tim the toolman Taylor. And you claim these claims, these radical ideas. I can see Hercules or Atlas with the world on his shoulders, or Hercules strangling a couple of snakes in his crib. That was the story. Or I can see uh, Thor with his hammer, or Baal on a lightning bolt coming down to earth, or Apollo, or Zeus. But Jesus the carpenter is saying these things. Man. And they took offense. It's prophesied. Isaiah, I lay in Zion in heavenly a choice stone and a precious cornerstone. When you build a house, you better get a cornerstone that's 90 by 90 because it lines up the rest of the house. Christ is called the cornerstone. He is righteous. When you're going to have a house of salvation, a temple of God in heaven, you better start with Jesus that you're all built upon this person. 
And so he is a precious cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. By calling him a stone and a rock, it's calling him the salvation of God. He that hears my words and acts upon them shall be like a man who built his house upon the rock. He that doesn't, doesn't build upon the rock. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. On this rock, I'll build my church. This rock, Daniel 2, what comes from heaven to crush Gentile dominion is the rock cut without hands. So often in the Bible, the rock is spoken of in the Old Testament often as God and very specifically as the one that God sends. He is the, uh, the precious stone that is perfectly shaped by God. This is the one that you get saved with. But he is also called the stone of stumbling. What that means is whenever a person, we say to them, I have got a bit of truth by which you can be saved forever. Really, yes, you can be the people of God. Really, yes, you can enter into the very temple of God. Really, yes. And here's what it's built on. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who became one of us. And he died for what we did because we can't atone for our own sin. And he lived the life that we can't live. And he rose from the dead because he alone is perfect. And he tells us who God is because we can't figure God out on our own. We can't remove our sin by our own. We can't be strong on our own. We can't rise from the dead on our own. We can't live like we should except by him and we can't pay for our sin. He is everything to us. Now to a man that knows he is stupid and sinful and weak, that's the most wonderful thing he has ever heard. Amen, you stupid people. <laughs> Amen. That's the most wonderful news there is. And he is the choice stone, the precious cornerstone. And on this rock, I will build my church. We become stones built with him in this building. But if you're somebody that you think you're so smart that you can dictate who God is, if you're somebody so holy that you don't need forgiveness, you're going to march into God's presence on your own because you're just so good. And if you're somebody that you're so mighty and so powerful that you're going to fix things on your own, you know what that precious stone's going to be to you? A stone of stumbling. You're going to start approaching the opening and you're going to stop and say, I've got a problem here. One time I went out on an evangelism explosion deal. Me and a guy named Lamar Trishman and a girl named Laura Burr. Went on a guy's house, knocked on the door, came in. He had been to church. And I said, I want to share with you some things. And uh, I asked him, I said, if you died right now, you think you'd go to heaven? Yeah, now, he was a Vietnam vet. Okay. He said, I know I'd go to heaven. I said, well, fantastic. And if you stood before God, why would you say if God said, why would I let you in? He said, let me in. He wouldn't let me in. I deserve to be there. I said, really? Lamar, why don't you share the gospel with this fellow right here? And I'll go wait in the car. And so before you get the good news of Christ, you get some bad news. And we shared with him some bad news. 
and his smile faded from his face. One time I was at an old folks home full of old folks and I was speaking to him and some woman brought her little Methodist, don't you remember, her little Methodist great-grandmother. She's 170 years old. And uh, she had been in the church all over. She knew everything. And she sat down. And I started sharing Romans chapter 4. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, grace, but it's what is due him. But to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And I said, folks, who gets to heaven? It's the unworthy and the ungodly who rest upon Christ alone because we are all sinners. And I looked at the crowd and then I saw her and she was going, <sighs> not really, but that's what, she looked like a cobra. She didn't like me. And if she had come in with a pistol, she'd have shot me dead. She was such a marvelous little old lady until I talked about Jesus, and then he became the stone of stumbling. She did not like the fact that she had to go into heaven the same as a pimp and a prostitute. She didn't like that. And she, he was to her the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. She was offended that I said these things. And uh, you know what the word offense is in Greek? It's spelled S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N, scandalon. What word do we get? Scandal. A scandal is when everybody thinks you're a good guy, and all of a sudden we pull back the covers, and you ain't a good guy. You're guilty, and that is Christ. You going to heaven? You bet I am. Your deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. You're a sinner. You're a covetous, unforgiving sinner. And they get offended at you. And so that was the problem with Jesus. God's choice stone and precious cornerstone to a sinner. He's walking up to the church and then he hears this message and he falls flat on his face and says, I'm not going in, and I don't like it. That's hate speech. That's what that is. And I am offended that you would say that about me. We have a problem believing that this man is that stone. Zeus, maybe. Atlas with the world on his shoulders. Some sensational individual but not this guy, this humble, lowly person saying such things to me. We've got a problem. It's called ad hominem. You ever seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington? Jimmy Stewart, is anybody with me? If you're going to grow spiritually, <laughs> you need to watch the classics. Okay. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The present senator dies, Jeff Smith becomes the senator because they felt he was nothing but a scoutmaster and he would have been easy to manipulate. The problem is he's got ideas. 
And he has a, a traditional corny view of the greatness of this country. And he starts saying some radical things and pointing the finger at some radical actions. And pretty soon, they hate him. Not just because of what he said, but because who he was. How dare you, you scoutmaster, saying that to Congress? You ever see another great Christian movie, Hoosiers? This guy becomes the basketball coach, shows them what the game is really like but they reject him because not just because he's radical and teaches them old school, substantial basketball, but he's been in the Navy for about 10 years. Jeff Smith, Norman Dale, we reject you, not for what you say and what you do, but who you are. You're just too common to be saying such radical things. And that's why they don't like Jesus. He says things like the court officer said, no man speak as this man. No man can get away with saying this. But not this guy. He's just too common. Well, Jesus recognized the problem in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and among his own household. Truth is hard to believe when it comes from such a clay pot of commonality. And so in verse 5, he could do no miracle except he laid his hands on a few sick and he healed them. No one came and nothing was accomplished. Question, the impotence of Christ here. No one was healed. Question, was it because he did not have the power? No, it's because people would not trust him. Is it possible for somebody to hear of the beauty of Christ, to see of his amazing work, and still walk away simply because they don't like who said it? And as a result, the greatest of all possible things does not occur. Jesus walked away. This is a terrifying notion. He will not force himself. If he is not freely received, he will go away. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and then opens it, I will come into him. Even our salvation, we who are totally depraved and have lost our will, which we have, even our salvation is not without willingness. It's the doctrine that is called efficacious grace where God teaches my heart to fear and God creates in me faith, where God bestows and grants repentance leading to the knowledge of the faith. God will not force his way, even with the elect, he will make them willing. Anything else is uh, ungodly. God is too great not to be responded to. And so Jesus walks away. Marvelous things that could have been, we never found out what they could be because of an unwilling heart. Is that ever true with human beings? What could he have been? What could she have been? We'll never know. Because she was alienated from her life and her being. 
What could he have been? What talent that never got used, that just got poured out like water on the ground? What could he have been? We don't know. What could Israel have been had they responded? We don't know. And that's what happens when you get alienated from God. What could have been? We'll never know. What a sad deal. And in verse 6, you're going to see a little Hebrew humor. It says they were astonished at him, verse 6, and he was astonished at them. He was astonished, literally, at their unbelief. Did you hear things you have never heard? Yes. Did you see things you have never seen? Yes. Would you like to believe? No, I don't. I have said to non-Christians at times, what is it about unconditional love you don't like? What is it about God becoming one of us and extending his arms that you don't like? What is it about wounded hands and feet and head and side and back that you don't like? That this is a God that would love you till death. If there was a stranger did that, you'd name your kids after him. This is God who did that. What is it about sacrificial love you don't like? How about we elevate you from condemnation to a child of God, a joint heir with Christ? What is it about that that you don't like? Would, you can't hold your hand over a Bic lighter for half a second. Let's all try it, okay? It won't work. It's too painful. But you're willing to go to the lake of fire that you can't endure and you can't escape forever. And he can get you out for nothing that you've done. For confessing with your mouth. You don't have to do it out loud. You confess that he is, is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead and you shall be saved. What is it about free grace and elevating from the lowest to the highest that you really hate? Think about that. I hate what he says about me. The problem is pride. These unparalleled ideas I can take from Zeus. I can take it from Thor, but I can't take it from him, this lowly man. And so, in verse 6, and he was going around the villages teaching. If you don't want to hear, then I'll go to who will. Uh, this was prophesied, incidentally, the radical nature of Jesus. Whenever Jesus was eight days old, they took him to the temple. A guy named Simeon said, this child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. What you think about God is going to be determined by what you do with this man. Some people are going to go to heaven. Some people are going to go to hell. This boy is going to be the fork in the road of heaven and hell on what you think. And he will be a sign to be opposed. A simion is a divine miracle where you know what the truth is because you can see it. And he called Jesus a living miracle. He's going to be a sign to be opposed. Humans are going to have a problem with this boy. Humans are cockroaches. When you turn on the light in a house full of cockroaches, you hear them. The cockroaches run. That's man. Uh, man. Men are vampires in the presence of truth and light. They flee that they will not have to deal with this person. And so Simeon said that. 
Does Jesus tell us some very radical ideas? That I cannot know truth unless God tells it to me. I can know the mechanics of life, but I can't know the meaning unless God tells me. Will you all hear that taught at Harvard? Man is at the mercy of the sovereignty of God to reveal himself. There is no course that will teach you that. We reject it. That I am dead in my sin unless I am invigorated by him. All religion follows the same path. There is performance and then there is verdict. Hinduism, performance, verdict. Buddhism, performance, verdict. Islam, performance, verdict. Classic Roman Catholicism, performance, and you get your way out of purgatory. Liberal Christianity, perform. Well, you don't even have to perform there. Forget all the rest of that. But that's religion. Do this, get that. Amen? That's religion. Christianity is the opposite. It's not performance and verdict. It is verdict and performance. You are saved by grace. How do you live? Here am I, Lord, send me. It's the very opposite. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of him who called us. And so, Jesus teaches radical things. Incarnation, divine revelation, propitiation that he paid for the wrath of God. Redemption, he paid for my sin. Uh, reconciliation, he is the one that conciliates me back to God. For people that are academically and morally and physically proud, Jesus turns the light on to show you exactly what you are. And that's why we hate him, is because of our pride. Let me show you something interesting. Look at Isaiah, would you? And Isaiah 53. When I say Isaiah 53, you think of the most Christ-centered passage in all of the Old Testament. I had one, a guy I was discipling once read this, and he called me. He said, that's Jesus. What's it doing over here? I said, yeah, it's about 700 BC. Here he is. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13, that's really where Isaiah 53 should begin. Nobody asked me, but that's where it should begin. In Isaiah 52 and verse 13, God says, my servant, that's the Messiah. Incidentally, the Messiah is called the servant of God. Because he is the one that is completely obedient to God. That's his calling card. He's not Thor. He's not Hercules. He's not Atlas. It's interesting, incidentally. Whenever man invents deities, he never invents Jesus. He's never the humble, perfect, godly, holy man. He's always something that's terrifying. Y'all ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Good. Because... Nietzsche felt that the worst things that ever happened to the human race were Moses and Jesus. Because they gave us, instead of the survival of the fittest, mighty man, storm and drang, thunder and lightning, instead of that, we got a slave's mentality of forgiveness and love and turning the other cheek. And the one that carried it out to its utmost grotesque end 
was that of Jesus. And so he said that he had no greater curse than for that of Israel and Christ. Frederick Nietzsche, just before he died mad. Okay. Christ is the servant, perfectly obedient to God. And he will prosper. He'll be high, raised from the dead. He'll be lifted up, ascended into heaven, and greatly exalted. He'll sit down at God's right hand. The perfect man. Verse 14, just as many people were astonished at you. That word you is in the plural. How many of you have after the word you, italics, that says my people? Yeah, it's not there in the Hebrew, but that's what's implied. Just as people were astonished at you, my people. Now let me stop in just a second. Whenever the Old Testament uses the idea of astonished in reference to Israel, it's usually people being appalled and horrified at the awfulness of the judgment upon them. When you saw the city desolate, destroyed, and the people deported a smoking ruin, you are astonished. Any of you ever, well, at the uh, Nuremberg trials, they did something that had never been seen. They showed black and white footage of the Holocaust. And the defense lawyers said those films should be pulled because they too influenced the people watching. And the prosecutor said they should be shown because they influenced the people watching. You need to see what they did. And you are horrified. You ever watch films of Nuremberg? The guys on trial looked down. They couldn't look at it. People had to get up and leave. And that's what the word astonished means. That just as people would look at you, Israel, and marvel, it would said often in the Old Testament that people would see that what had happened, and they would say, what have they done to deserve this? People are going to be astonished at you. And in the same way, his appearance was more marred than any man. The implication is this servant of God, people are going to sit and look at him and ask, what has he done? to be beaten and thorns stuck in his brow and beaten into his head, to have nails driven into his hands and his feet and his back taken off, his beard plucked from his face, spit on, speared in the side, and laugh at him while he lay there or hung there with dislocated arms choking on his own spit. And they did it for six hours. Just as people were astonished at you, my people, they're going to look at him. And they're going to be astonished. An international student asked my wife once, why do y'all all have the cross as your sign? She said, that's where you execute a man slowly over six hours. She thought, boy, that's a high visitors program right there to get in your church. But that's what they did to our king. And so people are going to be astonished at him. What has this man done? to be so cursed by God. In verse 14, and his form more than the sons of men, his appearance was marred more than any man. This, I'll tell you a funny story. Did you ever see the Passion of the Christ? Mel Gibson, Jim Caviezel. You remember the scourging scene? It just, it made the, the crowd went totally silent. The way they did that scene is they took a two by 12 plank and they put it on Jim Caviezel's back. 
And then they had the lictors beat him. Pretty dramatic. Jim Caviezel said one of those cat and nine tails on one occasion looped over that tuba 12 and caught him on the ribs. And Jim said, I won't tell you what happened, but I broke character <laughs> right there. And he said, it became a great outtake because he said, it is one thing to play act Jesus. It is another to be him. And he said it was indescribable. And that's what they did to him. He was more marred than any man. And yet in verse 15, thus are as crucified, he will sprinkle many nations, which is a Jewish term for being declared forgiven. That substitutionary death is going to save your soul. Amen? He's going to make you clean by his blood. And on account of him, kings, the Gentile world, will go silent. They will shut their mouths in the presence of God. For what had not been told them, they will see. This happens every Sunday when Charles gets up and says, let's go to our great God in prayer. And all of the Gentiles close their eyes and bow their heads and sit in silence. This crucified Jew is going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to the Gentile world. Isn't that something? And this is in 700 B.C. We're saying this. And here's why. Because what had not been told them, they will see. Oh, they got Zeus. They got Atlas. They got Hercules. They got Thor. But they don't have Jesus. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And now in 53.1, Isaiah says, Who has believed this report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He marvels at the lack of of Jews. Where are they? Why did the synagogue shut their doors on this guy? One scholar said that Isaiah marvels at the paucity of faith, that no one's there to believe. We got a room full of dogs. That's what we're called in the Jewish world. This is the kennel. You know, we start churches now with all them nifty little nouns, you know, the the bridge and the rope and the whatever. That's why I just love to have the kennel. I mean, that'd be great. Just a bunch of dogs. All right. Who's believed? Here's why Israel didn't like him, is verse 2. That's why. He grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot. He was just a man, and he was a tender shoot or a suckling. You ever cut off a tree? And out of the stump comes little shoots. That's what it means. A cut off tree. And here's this lone Jew. After Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome destroyed him. Here's this little guy. That as soon as he's born, a Roman king wants him dead. He's a little guy. He had no, he's like a root out of parched ground. That was Israel. Burned over. And here's this baby and a donkey's feeding trough. He had no stately form of majesty. I want Baal coming down on the lightning bolt. I want Thor with his, his whatever Thor has. All right. And we don't get, hey, that's where our words come from. Y'all ever take off on Thor's day? That's where it comes from. Our Odin's day, Wednesday. 
where it comes from is Norse mythology. And so he had no stately form that we should look on him or be attracted. He was despised and forsaken. We didn't want him. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What's, what's shortest verse in the New Testament? Jesus wept. Like one from men hide their face. You, Peter, you were with him. No, I wasn't. Yeah, you are. You talk like him. You're a Galilean. You think I do? Listen to this. He gave him a real good sailor's cussing. I don't want anything to do with him. Where's his disciples? They took off. He's rejected. Are you with me? It's prophesied. The reason men don't like him is not simply what he says, but who said it? He's so lowly. Well, good story. Naaman, I want to be healed. I got a letter from a king to your king. This prophet's got to heal me. He goes to his house. Elijah doesn't even come out. He sends Gehazi, Tim Conway, Don Knotts. He sends Gehazi. Oh, <coughs> you need to go down to the river and take off your clothes and you need to like dip in the river seven times and you'll be healed. Made him mad? Number one, I got told by a Jewish slave girl that the prophet can heal me. Number two, I got Don Knotts saying I got to strip naked and jump in a Jewish river. Ain't we got better rivers in Syria, the Aban and the Farpar rivers, to get in your dirty river, Jordan? You know what Jordan means? The waters of judgment. Should I have to get in your river? I'm going home. And one of his servants said, say, boss, if he'd ask you to swim the English Channel, what's the English Channel? I don't know. But if he'd ask you to swim the English Channel, you'd have swum it. If he'd ask you to climb Everest to be healed, you'd have climbed it. All he's asking you to do is wash and be clean. The problem isn't him, boss. I'm sorry, but it's you. How's about it? All right. And he stripped down and went seven times. And every time he went in, he thought, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. This is real stupid. This is the dumbest thing ever spoken. But you got to go all the way to the end. If you go in once and get clean, it's now a work. Seven times, it's crazy. And you're trusting God. And on the seventh time, he came forth. Remember your Bibles? His flesh was like baby's flesh. In other words, he was born again of water and the Spirit. And that's why men don't like him. Here came David to Goliath. And Goliath said, I'm the baddest guy in this part of the world. And you come to me like a dog with sticks. And that is how man sees Jesus. And that cross, that shepherd's staff, you come to me like a good shepherd with sticks. And you think you can get me to heaven. I'm insulted. Well, I have pondered this for a long time. Why does man have a problem with Jesus? Stay with me. We have a problem with Christ because he is so common. But... Granted that God would save man, 
if you were Spock working with pure rationale, you would have come away with however man is going to be saved, it can't be of him. There's going to have to be an incarnation of God among men. There's going to have to be a substitution and some sort of death and visible conquest. Granted that God is holy and they are sinful. That is the only way. And this person has to be God in the flesh so that he can live a life that is absolutely spotless and pure. He's got to be God. Secondly, he's got to not just be fully God, he's got to be fully man. Because the righteousness that he lives out can't just be appearing to us. He has to be a baby, a three-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 33-year-old, and he's got to face at the end of his life a Gethsemane of the awfulness of being cursed. And he's got to be obedient all the way to the end of his life. We got to see him start at 12 in the temple and he's got to end on a cross. That's the only way. He can't just be God. He's got to be man. And he can't simply be a perfect man. He has to be a man all the way. That's why Christ didn't just appear to us like an angel and die. No, he has to have a forged righteousness just like us. He's got to be, from the time he is three, it says he grew in wisdom. Twelve, he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. At the age of twelve, he is in the temple doing the Father's work. And they're amazed at his depth of understanding. At the age of thirty, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. Perfect 30-year-old. Three years, Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then he's got to go to the cross. And then to show that he's absolutely perfect, he's got to be raised from the dead. And so he's got to be God and he's got to be man and he's got to be a real man. He couldn't just die as a baby. Why didn't God just let Herod kill him and be done? Why didn't we let Nazareth throw him off the cliff and be done? He's got to go all the way to the end to where he's going to have to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken because God removed himself from the unclean. Why? Because there was no reason. Not in himself. Why? He knew why. But he let us know there is no reason for me to have to die. So why was God forsaking him? Write your name in there. That's why. And he couldn't be Clark Kent. He couldn't be just, an, just a disguise of humanity. It had to be real humanity. And thus, he had to be, there was only kind of one servant he could have been. That's what Spock would have said. There's only one kind of servant. He's got to be humble and lowly and obedient all the way to the end. He's got to be everything that a man isn't. And that's not Thor. That's what all men want to be. He's got to be holy all the way to the end. He's got to have a kenosis, a laying aside of his glory and his independent use of his deity. He's got to lay it aside to become like us. Uh, that's why on the cross, that was the temptation that said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. You don't have to go through this. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. You don't have to go through all of this. Right now, have the angels bear you up. If you're the son of God, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. You don't have to go through all of this. Go around the pain and just get the cross. You don't have to be a real man. Be Clark Kent. And Jesus said, be gone. They can't do it. I can't do it either. 
they can't take themselves, that was the last temptation. If you're the son of God, take yourself down from the cross. He said, no. It was always Satan saying, you don't have to go through this. Satan knew what made for a savior. And that's our savior. So, the problem with Jesus is that he's just like us. And man has never forgiven him for doing that. Let me show you a song. You ever hear this old southern gospel song? Because there's, it's called No Not One. You ever sing that? Stuarts, you've sung that. And you've sung every southern gospel song ever been sung. Got words? Stick with me. How many of you know this song? A bunch of you know this. It goes like this. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No friend like him is so high and holy. No, not one. No, not one. Yet no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There's not an hour that he is not near us. No, not one. No, not one. No night so dark, but his love can cheer us. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Father in heaven, indeed, there is no other name given among men by which they must be saved. That God so loved the world that he gave his son, his begotten son, his only begotten son. That anyone, whosoever, should merely believe in him and say yes. That to whomever believeth on him, he would not perish. Because that's where he, he'll be when he, when he does it. But he will have something right now. And that is the very life of God. That will grow into a great fountain until the day passes and he stands in the presence. Lord, 
If there's anybody here that in their brilliant wisdom, they have figured out that they don't want God in the flesh. Show them the astonishment of their ways. In Christ's name.